Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to talk politics on the show today. Our core mission here at Political Rewind and in the weeks ahead leading up to the June 9th primary election, we'll certainly be covering the campaigns as they unfold, uh, voting, how you're doing in early voting, absentee voting and the like. And um, we'll mix that in with the latest news on the coronavirus and efforts to uh, slow its spread here the Ahmad Arbery case, and uh, other important stories in the news. Before I introduce the panel, just a quick note to all of you. I really have been overwhelmed by the number of you who have sent me emails or tweeted, uh, posted on Facebook, um, your uh, response to my telling the story of our family, the loss of our my father-in-law, Janice Schaefer's uh, father, uh, in the middle of the pandemic. My, my point, and you, you've been really wonderful in sending me your condolences, and you've also shared your stories and, and the difficulties you're having with loved ones who are sick and you can't see, or you two who have lost them. And that was my real point, not, not to try to single out our family as special, uh, because we're not. Uh, it was to say we're all in this together, but I do appreciate your responding, and I will be getting back to all of you uh, as the weekend goes on, because I always try to uh, answer the emails that you send me. All right, with that said, let's get down to business today. Jim Galloway, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us, as he is on Mondays and Fridays. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday edition of the newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hey, Jim Galloway. By the way, We've got Monday off, Jim. No political rewind on Memorial Day. We're going to give you an yeah, extra day yeah. off. Three-day weekend. I am going to go nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like real fun. <laughs> We're also joined today by State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. She represents Decatur. She is a, a Democratic state rep. And... Um, she has been sheltering in place either at your law office, right, Mary Margaret, or at your home. Work continues for you. You're also busy because you're on the Appropriations Committee and one of the people who's looking at how to make these tough, tough budget cuts that you're going to be faced with this session. How's that going? The budget is very, very scary. Uh, it's interesting how we're all fairly managing our panic about it, uh, but I'm pretty worried and it's going to be a tough 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 next six weeks next four weeks well we'll be following that and talking about it on the show as it proceeds dr andre gillespie political science professor from emory university is back with us your semester is now over uh andre and you're getting set for a, what a summer of traveling to europe or the far east i'm sure <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, no. So the semester is over, but the work isn't done, and now we have to get ready to, yeah. uh, you know, plan for whatever type of semester we have coming next. And Emory has not decided yet. I think I'm right to say exactly how fall classes will proceed. Is that right? Correct. So they're just waiting for more data, um, and you know, we have all been, you know, duly informed about that. So you know, we're just gonna we're, we'll prepare for everything, and we'll be ready by the time the semester starts. 
All right, we'll be interested in that. We know the state university system, uh, uh, Steve Wrigley, the chancellor, has said he wants to get uh, all of the state universities open with lots of uh, restrictions in place to prevent the spread of the virus. So we'll see how the private schools in Georgia do on that same score. We're also joined today by former state representative Edward Lindsay. Uh, Edward Lindsay is now a partner in Denton's world's largest law firm, but he served in the state house as a member of, uh, as a representative from Atlanta. And Edward, two things. Number one, it's always fun to have you and Mary Margaret on together because we've mentioned this at least once. You and Mary Margaret are partners in teaching Sunday school, although not so much lately, right? (laughs) Finding Jesus on the front page. It's a, it's a great class. Come on to All Saints Episcopal Church and join us. And we actually do it. Are online you doing now. it virtually? Okay, you a, are doing it. A group it that's online. continuing online. Yes. The other thing we should point out about you, Edward, is that uh, you were on uh, the Appropriations Committee back when the uh, state faced its previous budget crisis during the recession. So you're well aware and sympathetic with what Mary and Margaret and the members of the uh, both this House and Senate budget committees are dealing with right now very much so we had uh, thought that this would be a sort of a once in a century type of problem that we were dealing with back in 09 and 10 and it's very uh, sad to see that uh, the legislature is having to do it again only a decade later all right um jim galloway let's start with this odd juxtaposition apparent contradiction in messaging that we're watching between President Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. As we all know, President Trump lately has been uh, very critical, very outspoken about absentee voting. He believes that it is a way to perpetrate fraud, or at least he claims he believes that's the case. He was in Ypsilanti, Michigan at a General Motors plant yesterday, and he continued uh, talking about absentee balloting. Here's just one of the things he said. We're not going to go to uh, uh, voting by mail. Uh, Voting by mail is wrought with uh, fraud and abuse, and people don't get their ballots that happen to be in a certain district, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Thousands of ballots are sent out, but they don't happen to get them, so people are calling, where's my ballot? They call it a panic. Where is it? Where is it? The election's coming. So, Jim, we want to dig into what this is all about. But before we talk about Trump and and the way he's perpetuating this, what is a false notion? Uh, Ironically, you have Brad Ravensburger here encouraging Georgians to please vote by mail so they don't have to show up at polling places uh, with the virus still out there. And we now have something like 1.53 million requests for absentee ballots in Georgia. It's a very strange dissonance, Jim. Right. And and um, more than half a million ballots have already been handed in to county election officials. I mean, I mean, this is I mean, look at it this way. We had we had uh, almost um, 887,000 votes cast in the 2016 primary. We were, we're almost up to two thirds of that that number right now. Uh, in in ballots already cast, and and if you, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing about yes, Republicans are crying fraud when it comes to mail in ballots, 
But what we're really looking at is a vast change in dynamics of who's voting. Because if you look at, uh, if you look at that 2016 contest, uh, two-thirds of the ballots cast were Republican ballots. They, the voters chose Republican mm-hmm. uh, 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 ballots in the, in the 2016 Georgia primary. This time, that number right now, so far, and not all ballots have been processed, uh, uh, absentee ballot requests have been processed yet. But right now, that number stands at 56% Republican. So it's a, it's a real sharp decrease. And, and when that happens, those are, those are, those are new, newly identified voters, and it has tremendous implications for November, I think. Edward? Yeah, well, um, Secretary of State Rathenberg was having to deal with two, two truths here. Uh, the first is that folks are worried about going to, to, to the polls. Uh, worried for safety reasons. So they're going to want to uh, vote by mail. And he's trying to to basically answer that concern by making it easier to vote by mail, although Georgia already has some of the best laws in the country when it comes to being able to vote by mail. There is, however, uh, and I know from my Democratic friends, a lot of times they want to simply dismiss anything that President Trump says. There is some basis uh, for the concerns about shenanigans possibly taking place when it comes to vote by mail. That's something that's been recognized for a long time. It was something that was reported uh, by a bipartisan commission uh, in the federal government in 2004, by the 2005, by uh, former Secretary of State Baker and former President Jimmy Carter. It was something that was recognized by the ACLU in 2006 when they talked about concerns over over vote by mail and, and possible fraud. It was something that uh, that we've seen fairly recently in 2018 when there was this massive fraud that took place in a Republican race in North Carolina. But so what he's what what Secretary of State Raffensperger is also needing to do is is yes make it easier for people to vote by mail because that's that's just going to be a necessity in November. But he's also trying to take a hard look to make sure that if any shenanigans do take place that they are properly addressed. There's also, quite frankly, Andrew, I want to get the you... issue of fraud. Can I, I add one other quick point, Bill? This is simply the mechanics, the administrative part of this. It, this is not going to be <laughs> easy uh, in terms of, of folks, uh, the, the various 159 counties uh, administering uh, the uh, vote by mail. Uh, that's something that they've never had to do. And it's also quite probably going to lead to more voters having difficulty because you're not going to have uh, someone there to help you if you make a mistake. Andra, I got to be honest, Edward's catching me completely off guard because everything I've read from the Brennan Center for Justice, other reporting, especially on absentee ballot fraud, not general voter fraud, but absentee ballot specifically, says that it has been incredibly rare. North Carolina, which uh, Edward just talked about, absolutely is a recent sign. Uh, We saw that unfold. But I want to look at the study he's talking about. But, Andrew, why don't you weigh in? 
Um, so I, I think Ed is borrowing a, a little bit of trouble here. Never, we should never be lackadaisical about, you know, thinking about making sure that our voting processes are secure and that we're making sure that the people who are supposed to vote actually get the right to vote. But the consensus of the studies is that, one, voter fraud, broadly defined, is extremely rare in the United States. So thankfully, we've got lots of problems. That's not one of them in the United States. So I'd rather not adopt that as a problem. And that, too, in particular, to the extent that it happens, nobody's saying that it's non-existent or that it's zero, that it really wouldn't change the outcome of elections. Yeah, North Carolina 9th was a big outlier, and that's a big problem. It's not people falsely filling out forms. It is some unscrupulous person offering to deliver one's uh, uh, ballot to the election office and then just keeping them in a corner in his house. That was the problem that was going on there. And I think, one, for him, for President Trump in particular, to misrepresent the information, to uh, trump up uh, clerical sort of errors, mistakes, and difficulties as evidence of uh, jettisoning the whole system is problematic. The other thing that's actually really problematic about this is that if non-voters voted, right, and so some of this is sort of motivated by, oh, these, all these new people who are going to vote, they may be Democrats. Um, so, you know, people have some trepidations about that. If you let everybody vote, in 2016, the Knight Foundation actually came out uh, with a study that polled non-voters, and they actually broke for Donald Trump in the election. So this idea that, you know, that you can kind of uh, massage what the electorate looks like by, uh, you know, making it harder for some people to vote really also is not borne out by the data. So I would err on the side of trying to make voting as easy for people as possible, especially in a pandemic when people have legitimate concerns about whether or not they would get sick by actually standing in line to vote. I, Mary Margaret, I, I know Edward wants to get back in, but I really want to give you a chance uh, first. And, and then, Edward, certainly you you, you uh, get your uh, uh, comments in as well. Uh, I want to frame this in the terms that uh, Donald Trump is putting it in, um, which is his suggestion that it is Democrats who will perpetrate the fraud and therefore uh, have a better chance to win elections. We've had Speaker of the Georgia House, David Ralston, uh, suggest that uh, s- same thing. He tried to back away from his comments. And nevertheless, he's too said what President Trump had said, which is Democrats will win elections if absentee ballots are sent out there. Uh, so why don't you frame it that way, Mary Margaret, give you a chance, and then Edward jump back in. For several years, the message from the Republican leadership has been voter fraud. That was used for the ID card and uh, exact match and all these kind of devices that the Republicans have put forward, all have been on the basis of alleged voter fraud. In my long political career, the technology in relation to everything has changed. Obviously, what we're doing this morning does not did not happen 10 years ago in terms of uh, Zoom and WebEx, but the technology around voting and will change more in the remainder of my political career. I participated for about an hour on Tuesday with a phone call with Secretary of State Raffensperger, but more particularly with Gabe Sterling, who is the Secretary of State agent for managing what is an unprecedented logistical issue, as you said, of 1.53 applications for messaging, for absentee ballots. The logistics of how you count on election day uh, those numbers of absentee ballots and the logistics of the way in which the Secretary of State, in hiring a private vendor who has done 
some of this task for the Western states that are more totally related to absentee voting by mail. It's fascinating to me. It, this hour's conversation kind of brought it home for me, the logistics of what the Secretary of State's office is facing in terms of a brand new set of machines, a brand new set of training, a uh, logistical operation of a pandemic of fear that people have about voting and the fact that your poll workers are almost all seem to be over 70 years old. People are going to vote absentee. They're going to like it, and they're going to be able to rely upon it. And despite what the president says, which is totally a political message, has no reality in the world that we live in, in real world people, they're going to be able to follow their absentee ballot. In my newsletter I put out yesterday, I showed people in a little chart about how they can follow exactly where their absentee ballot is, where it's located, if there's any mess up, what the law is about the Secretary of State having to notify them if there's a mess up within a certain number of days. People are going to like this system. The messaging that comes out of what? the president is something that we're just going to have to continue continue to ignore and turn our attention to the real professionals that are operating in a totally unprecedented world and allow people and help people and encourage people to vote by mail and absentee. Uh, and Mary Margaret, uh, because I'm getting so many notes from people asking about their absentee ballots when they're going to arrive, would you share with Tom Faust uh, where they uh, that information can be found and we'll send it out on our social media platforms? Would you uh, offline do, do that with him? I will send you All right. that. Edward, I want to go back. Yeah. Let, let me make sure. Edward, that, I want to go back to you. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Let me make sure that, that what I was saying is clearly understood. I like voting by mail. I think voting by mail is something that a lot of people are going to want to do. And anything that makes it easier for people to vote, I think, is a good thing. But in doing so, I don't want folks to be to put blinders on regarding possible concerns that have been raised for years. Uh, there was a New York Times article just uh, this week that, that had a couple of experts, one out of MIT and one out of University of California at Irvine, that said that, that recognized that there are possible concerns regarding uh, shenanigans or fraud with, with vote by mail. I simply want to make sure that the proper guardrails, and that's something that the Carter Institute, mind you, uh, put no. out just about a week or two ago, in which he said, you know, if we have proper guardrails, we need to do this. Uh, this is a good thing. And, and, and I agree with the Carter Institute. We just need to make sure that we have the proper guardrails and we have people watching closely to make sure that what happened in North Carolina and what's happened in some other states in different uh, instances, which are, as Andre put, fairly rare, but nevertheless do happen, don't happen here in Georgia. That's my main point. Jim, Jim, I want to get you in, but let me, I, I looked up while we were, you were all talking, uh, what the study, the uh, report that uh, Edward talked about, and it's in 2005, uh, the president and former Secretary of State James Baker, Republican, did in fact have a bipartisan commission on federal election reform. It related to voter ID, however, and here's what they said, what, what Edward was talking about. Um, when it comes to ID laws, confusion reigns. The laws on the books, mainly backed by Republicans, have not made it easy enough for voters to acquire an ID. At the same time, 
Democrats have tended to, to try to block voter ID legislation outright instead of seeking to revise that legislation to promote accessibility. So Edward is right, but th- that was re- referring to in-person voting for the most part. But more important here, Jim, I think we're not seeing the forest for the trees. Um, this is about a the president <laughs> suggesting he doesn't want more people to vote because— right. Uh, it means Democrats were more likely win elections. Yeah, yeah, and and he said that part out loud um, a few weeks ago that the, the that the more people who vote, uh, uh, if 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 everybody gets to vote, then he said, I think the quote was that that, that a Republican will never get elected anywhere. Uh, one interesting thing about what you were talking about, Bill, the voter ID, the the voter ID uh, criticism from that Baker Carter report. Uh, George, in, in response, in, yeah. in its defense of uh, legal defense of the vo- its voter ID law, which be the variations, I, th- I think they began passing uh, passing uh, in, in 2006. In in response to to the court challenge to that the, the voter ID bill, uh, Georgia went in and it loosened its absentee ballot re- uh, mm-hmm. uh, regulations. We became a a no no excuse absentee ballot state. And that's that's what has led us to where we are today. Yeah, what's that mean? Let's make sure we explain that. You no longer have to have a reason for why you want an absentee ballot. You, it's an at-will uh, uh, right. voting absentee if you choose it. Andra? So, I mean, you know, in, in citing sort of the, uh, the uh, political scientist and the law professor, I know the political scientist. He's actually an Emory alum at, um, at MIT, Charles Stewart. And I just can't imagine Charles Stewart would sort of fall on the side of, of agreeing with President Trump by any stretch of the imagination. I assume in the report, and I'm looking at the part that looks at voter registration and absentee ballot fraud, the stuff that they were concerned about. Um, is one third-party voter registration and absentee ballot harvesting, right? And there are ways that we could talk about, you know, how that would affect groups like the New Georgia Project, for instance, and how those things have been used. But what they're really concerned about, it looks like, is uh, third parties either taking ballots and doing the various things with them, like what happened in the North Carolina night, or people intimidating, especially when you're dealing with elderly citizens or you're sitting in a room and it looks like people are under undue pressure uh, to try to mark ballots in particular ways. They do mention non-citizens voting, but like they mentioned cases, one that are isolated and two that have only a few hundred votes that are actually implicated. So I think we also have to be really careful about saying, yeah, this stuff happens sometimes, but does it happen to the extent that it's actually going to affect the outcome of elections? And it doesn't look that way. So, yeah, let's be careful. Let's not like create loopholes for people to exploit them. But let's also not make this out to be a problem that it isn't, because that's where this where you start to hyperbolize and sensationalize this. And that's where you end up starting to have problems. Mary Margaret and then Edward. The voter ID discussion a dozen years ago uh, was very painful. And it was, uh, again, another totally political operation. And the way they use the Carter and Baker Commission report then is, is we're replaying it this morning. It doesn't relate to today's world, today's technology. The reality of today, not 2006, not earlier than that, is that we're in an international pandemic, that we have 7 million people who are registered to vote and somewhere between 4 and 5 million people are going to vote. And 
that is what we want to have happen. We have to use today's technology. We have to use absentee ballot. And before my political career is over, I believe everybody is going to be voting by absentee ballot, by paper, or electronically. I think that we're in a new world, and the old message about fraud is simply irrelevant to today's enormous challenges. Here's a question I ask all the time. If 5 million people are going to vote, what's an acceptable error rate? How many people of the 5 million voting votes are, are going to be lost or eaten or in some way not counted? What is an acceptable error rate when you're dealing with the kinds of numbers, the kind of growth, and the kind of merging technology of today's world? I want somebody to answer that question for me and quit taking my time talking about fraud. Edward, I'm going to give you the last word before we got to get to a break. Uh, Mary Margaret, let me sort of pick up on what Mary Margaret said, because I agree with her. And what is the acceptable error rate? And that's going to be the toughest thing when it comes to uh, vote by mail, because when someone is sitting alone casting their ballot, as opposed to being in a voting booth where they can then walk out and say, I made a mistake, how can I fix it? The fact of the matter is, is that the error rate for folks who send their, their votes in by, by mail is much higher than folks who are at the voting booth. And that's something that, that we have to address over time. And, 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 and that's not that I oppose it. It's just something that we have, to, we have to figure out a way to make sure that everyone's vote counts. And I'll send one last word. I do find, as a Republican, I find it offensive that anyone would argue that, that uh, more votes uh, will lead to Democratic wins. I think that I want everyone to vote, I, you know, and thankfully they will. All right. I was going to take a break, but but now I think we've got to talk for a couple more minutes. I, I never expected that this topic was going to take so much time, but, but it's an important conversation uh, because I want to go back to the context of all of this. Andra, there is no question, as we look across the country, that states that used to limit absentee voting or didn't want absentee voting at all are now turning to absentee balloting. I think it's now 11 of 16 states that had largely prohibited it in any significant way have now said, yes, we're going to expand it. Mary Margaret says she thinks people are going to be voting by mail in, in, as in the majority of cases in the years to come. And so while we look at that trend, again, we go back to President Trump, who insists, who makes claims about massive fraud in absentee balloting. Um, it, there, the dissonance there is that it really doesn't matter what the president is saying in some ways, because absentee balloting is here to stay and is only going to grow. Fair enough, Andra? Um, I mean, I think that is fair enough, and you have to kind of discount um, the president's one hyperbole and the fact that he makes stuff up um, and does it on the fly on a regular basis. So, you know, that's part of what's going on. Um, but the fact that he has a bully pulpit and can throw these claims out that then we have to spend a lot of time discussing and kind of, you know, clearing the air about is what is so problematic about this. And that, like, I know that you don't want to restrict voting rights. But unfortunately, especially when the uh, this, this, this uh, Carter Baker report kind of came out, right, the whole discussion was about voter ID. And there were Republicans who went on record in states like Florida and in Pennsylvania who said, stuff like, I don't want Democrats to vote, so I'm going to make it harder for them to vote. 
So right. that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It's not necessarily to malign you. And if I could just make one more correction, again, I'm going to stick with voting being rare, but I can't remember the context in which I was talking about sort of things. But like the other claim is um, undocumented people vote all the time. Yeah, no, like th th those cases get counted in this report in the hundreds. And as I've said, I think on other shows before, that extrapolation that millions of undocumented people voted in 2016 is just like not borne out by the data. And that study was like deeply flawed to begin with. All right, Galloway, I do need to take a break, but sum this up for us. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, look, I think, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Utah is a Republican state, and 90% of its ballots are cast by mail. Right. I think what you're going to find is that as mail-in balloting becomes more, becomes more common, and, 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 as it, and as it is... Uh, and, and as Republicans in states that are not familiar with it kind of work out the system for, for, for getting the results they want, I think you're going to see this, this argument disappear. But it's going to take, it's, it's going to take a couple, couple, three election cycles. All right. Um, thank you for a really spirited and, I thought, uh, informative conversation about all that. We got a lot more political news to talk about. We'll uh, continue uh, with Political Rewind after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Oh, one very quick note about absentee voting before we move on. I continue to get messages from a lot of you. Uh, I've addressed this on the show once before. I'll probably do it several times. You're concerned because when you get your absentee ballot, there are instructions that once you voted, you should put your ballot, fold it, put it into an envelope, and then mail that envelope. They're supposed to be, according to the instructions, an envelope included with the package you get. Uh, in fact, there was no envelope. The Secretary of State's office has acknowledged they should not have included that instruction. You are simply to fold over your ballot and uh, put it in the larger envelope, uh, the return envelope. There's no separate envelope. Jim Galloway, what, have I got no, this it, wrong? It, there's uh, no internal yeah, I, I, env envelope. There, there's, no, there's no envelope. They are now calling it a sleeve. Right. What it is is just a piece of paper, a separate piece of paper <laughs> oh, that you yeah, that you right. use to, right. to, to fold over your ballot so so whoever opens the larger envelope uh, okay. that it arrives in cannot see see how you voted. Thank you. Thank you for correcting you. The point is you will not find an envelope included in your package. Don't worry. Your vote is going to still count. I just wanted to, because I keep getting con uh, questions about that. Uh, let's talk coronavirus and politics for a few minutes. Uh, just a few important notes about the virus today. Uh, we have learned there's a new hotspot that's developed in Sparta and in Hancock County. And uh, there are now 167 confirmed cases there with a population of just 9,400 people. Uh, that makes it the fourth highest in the state per uh, 100,000 people. They've had 15 deaths, 29 hospitalizations, and sadly again, uh, Hancock County is 71% African-American. So we once again see, uh, Jim, 
the toll that this uh, virus is taking on African Americans. Uh, by the way, Appling County had to close one of its its only early voting site because there a voter tested positive for the virus. Uh, the election staff in McDuffie County was sent home after the absentee ballot clerk and their receptionist tested positive for the virus. I mean, this is the, it is still affecting our election. But, Jim, to my first point, this disease continues to take the worst toll on African-Americans. And not only that, it's 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 specific. It's getting specific to African Americans in regions of the state that have a a, a where healthcare is either poor or non-existence. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. With that in mind, um, Mary Margaret, I'll give you the first shot at this. We learned again this week that once again the Department of Public Health uh, was, I want I, I say caught. Uh, it turns out they were giving out incorrect data. They were telling us the number of tests that had been administered in the state, COVID-19 tests, but they had incorrectly been including in those numbers the number of tests for antibodies, which is a very different matter entirely. If you just if you include them together, you're not able to really track where the disease is. So, Mary Margaret, this is the third or fourth major mis- mistake. We've said on the show, or at least I have, that it. I understand there are some people who think that the uh, the state is intentionally manipulating data to make uh, make things look better than uh, it than things really are. I've said that. I, I hate to think that might be the case, and it may be they don't know how to handle the data they've got. They uh, are not very good at their job. Mary Margaret, what do we make of the fact we continue to have these problems with reporting? Let me tie the Hancock story together with the data problems. We know that uh, the nursing home uh, death rate is significant in relation to the virus. The numbers of death in the Sparta nursing home were like 17 out of 52 residents, and 20% of the staff of the Sparta nursing home uh, were infected with the virus. Those numbers, whether it's 14 deaths, 17 deaths out of 52, have all been uh, discussed, and, and it's been confusing, and it's an example, a small example, in a very, very desperately challenged county about what is happening with the virus in Hancock County and is it all a nursing home and what is the death rate there? Then you take it to where are the deaths reported. The nursing home says they report it to uh, Medicaid, the Department of Community Health, and not through the, the coroner system. We have enormous challenges and we have failed to invest in data calculation across this state. The payer of health care, Medicaid, has far more capacity to understand what's happening medically with people through payment records, and we have invested there because that involves money going to providers. We have not invested in a data platform for public health, and it is one of the weaknesses of our system, and it's one of the weaknesses that is significantly dramatized by this pandemic. We have in Georgia the expertise around epidemiology and around the science of data and around the science of public health, and yet our state public health department is truly struggling at a time when we need them to have top-notch. 
Here's a question that I ask, and Jim Galloway usually knows the answer. What state has really managed public health data in the most effective way and have invested the right kind of money in the correct way in order to prepare us for the challenges we have today? Oh, and, and, and I get to answer that? I, quite frankly, I don't know. But I would, but, but before we bring uh, Andre in, into the conversation, what I would say is that this isn't just a Georgia-specific problem. The CDC, it's Atlanta-based, but it's a national organization. The CDC has been doing the same thing that the Department of Public Health has done in Georgia. Uh, it is mixing these, it has been mixing these tests, and it got called out for it this week. All right. And, and, Bill, let me just respond to that because you did raise it in your question. That was a mistake. They should not have been putting the antibody test together with the virus test. That's a clear mistake. Even I know that, and I'm certainly not an epidemiologist. And so they've corrected that, and so we're kind of in a start-over mode there. So anybody who works with data, um, so whether in the social sciences or in, you know, epidemiology, I think, you know, one of the things that you get taught is how to be transparent about your methods. Um, and about how you're operationalizing your variable. So somebody should be able to see what you're doing and kind of be able to follow what you're doing. A way to kind of obscure that and to make people, like, not trust what you're saying is to change how you're going to operationalize or code or count your data midstream. And that's when the first problem that happened was that this started to be counted and reported one way, and then all of a sudden there has to be this change, Right. Um, and so what that does is that that doesn't actually sort of create a sense of trust or establish trust between the reporting agency and the people who are actually consuming the data. And then there are the things that we've seen about it. So it's not just mistakes about whether or not antibody tests are included with regular tests to, to diagnose active cases of it. It's the idea of you're going to backdate diagnoses to try to figure out when the virus happened. Right, like that just looks like people are playing fun stuff, uh, uh, weird stuff with numbers. And that's probably part of the reason why it doesn't appear. And there, there's some issues with the probability sampling um, of the, the statewide survey uh, that was done that actually sort of showed that, that Governor Kemp was at the bottom of it. So I, I do want to be kind of honest about that. But maybe if that is in fact true, there may be a reason why people don't trust Governor Kemp, and it's because if you've got to keep on going back and changing your numbers all the time, that's just raising questions so people just don't feel confident in what it is that you're saying. Edward, we well, should say that the governor did yesterday at his news conference apologize for the mis- what, what turned out to be misleading data, and, and we do want to give him at least credit uh, for uh, issuing an apology on that. It still doesn't make the state look very good. We're getting hammered in the national media once again, the L.A. Times, uh, the Washington Post, accusing uh, the governor and public health people here of lying. But go ahead and make your comments, Edward. Well, you know, this, this gets back to one of the problems when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you've got a lot of data that's being thrown about, not just here in Georgia, but around the country. Mistakes are going to happen. But in a 24-hour news cycle, particularly in a hyper-partisan news cycle, uh, mistakes are now often equated to to lying and and to consciously and willfully hiding information. The fact of the matter is, around the country, we've seen numerous instances where data was simply wrong. Uh, we had situations in New York, for instance, in which there was a gross underreporting of the number of deaths from nursing in nursing homes until that information was caught. 
there was a situation in Colorado in which they uh, changed uh, how they calculated COVID deaths versus uh, folks who died from other reasons but also had the COVID virus. And so that's part of what we're going through right now around the country is that we are, you know, we're basically drinking from a fire hose, all these health officials, while they're trying to deal with the the pandemic, they're also trying to produce accurate data for us to digest all within a 24-hour news cycle. I would ask folks to take a pause. And and I do congratulate the governor for stepping up and saying a mistake was made and we're going to fix it. I want to see more politicians around the country do something similar to that when something happens. The Colorado governor, let me also say, did the exact same thing when they changed the methodology. And so did Governor Cuomo when the mistake was found in New York. I think all three should be congratulated for stepping in front of a camera and saying a previous uh, calculation was wrong. This is the correct data. That's the sort of uh, that's the sort of leader that I want to see, whether they be Republican or Democrat around the country, because data is going to be wrong. And my guess is other states have probably lumped uh, the um, the antibody test with with this other test as well. And so all I want to see from politicians right now is to step up when the mistake is made. I mean, I would argue that there's a difference between kind of miscounting and then changing your measurement scheme midstream. And I think that that's where the problem is. Yeah, mistakes are going to happen. Somebody's going to write the wrong thing on a death certificate. Somebody's going to die in their apartment and you don't know that they died of COVID, but you figure it out a couple weeks later. That kind of stuff I think is okay, but you've got to establish the methodology at the outset and then kind of be consistent about how you're doing it. When you change it, that's when people start to lose confidence in what you're saying because it looks like you're doing it out of a sense of convenience and not out of a sense of accuracy. You know, you know, Jim, it strikes me that Andra made a, a point that we really ought to emphasize. Um, and, and, and it kind of speaks to something that Ed said as well. Edward points out that we're drinking through the state public health and other state officials are drinking through a fire hose with this pandemic right now. Absolutely. That's clearly the case. And so lots of mistakes, some large, some small, are being made. But, but Jim, what Andra points out is that... Um, this is our systems were not prepared for dealing with what we're seeing right now. And it isn't as if we didn't all recognize and have warning signs over the years that viruses could run rampant in our society. And yet it's clear now we're paying for the lack of preparation in terms of, if nothing more, uh, forget about number of tests, the number of PPEs, whatever, just in terms of how we collect and analyze data, we didn't have systems in place that would give people reliable, trustworthy information. Right. I, I would argue that over the last two decades, state by state, by state and remember, this is a state-by-state state system. The, 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 the federal link here is very weak. Uh, the Departments of Public Health uh, in state governments have been woefully underfunded, and they are a favorite place to cut uh, when, when, when times get rough. Uh, I would also, I would also, to, to, to Andre's, Andre's point, I, I would, uh, we've got to bring in, in the fact that Governor Pence is 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 visiting Georgia today. He's having he, he's in Atlanta uh, he's, today. Yep, yep. He's lunching with lunching with Mike Pence, and then he's uh, with with Brian Kemp, and then he's going to uh, going to the Waffle House uh, headquarters to meet with restaurateurs. But you know, it's it's it, it's a, it's it's not coincidental that that. Kemp has had prob- problems with data uh, that that 
The Trump administration has had uh, trouble with me- uh, messaging on the pandemic. And uh, right now, uh, Brian Kemp's numbers uh, on, on, that, on that score are roughly equivalent to, to, to Donald Trump's, and they're not very good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, so um, we see it. But Mer- one of the things that they pointed out was that they had a non-probability sample. So um, and it doesn't look like they tried to weight it. So um, it's just a question of in those top line numbers, does that actually sort of reflect the cross section of the populations of each of those states? I don't know yet. And so that was part of the reason why I would be hesitant about that. But I think sort of pointing out that when things look like they're being led by politicians versus being led by experts, problems happen. And so perhaps the politicians and the political appointees need to get out of the way and kind of let the scientists do their jobs. Because surely, even in the Georgia Department of Public Health, there is a data scientist and an epidemiologist who knows how to count that data, and they don't need to be told by a political hat how to do their job. Mary Margaret, uh, Jim Galloway, before I get to another break, uh, brought up an important point here. I mentioned it in the headlines before the show uh, got underway today. These 14 percent budget cuts that the governor has uh, required of all state agencies include the Department of Public Health at a time when they are fighting the pandemic. Um, They're going to lose positions and uh, there also is going to be cut. There are going to be cuts for county health agencies. As you all look at that in the Appropriations Committee, how are you dealing with the fact that these cuts are being uh, required at a time when we're still dealing with a pandemic? I think we're really in trouble. I think we're very much in trouble. And I'll use the example of maternal mortality. I did not know until recently that every one of the public health, 159 public health offices, they do not everyone offer prenatal care. That was amazing to me in a, in a discussion in an era where Georgia is close to the bottom, if not the bottom, on deaths of, of women and delivery of babies. At the same time, we've had this very exciting little, little breakthrough of funding $19 million for extending Medicaid coverage for women post-birth to deal with the maternal mortality. Going into this budget cut, one of my issues, one of my commitments uh, that I'm making everywhere I go is that I want to preserve that increase of Medicaid coverage up to six months uh, for women post-birth. That should not be cut in our 14%. And in relation to protecting our public health system, which we are showing to be so critical, particularly in places like Hancock County, where there is a total absence of access to health care, we have to protect those health care. So, and if the pandemic hasn't shown us this, if we've not learned through this process, then shame on us. All right, we got to get to a final break of the show. Uh, we'll do that right now. And when we come back, Kelly Leffler has some new ads on the air, and uh, they're tough. Jim Galloway will help us understand what I'm talking about. We'll be right back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
I don't think anyone would dispute uh, my statement that Kelly Leffler has been getting roughed up since she was appointed to the United States Senate. Conservative Republicans who prefer Doug Collins and don't think that she's necessarily one of them have been uh, beating her up. Uh, Doug Collins certainly has. And she's gotten a lot of critical treatment in the media. Uh, Some of it may very well be deserved. I'm not suggesting that uh, it's not. Uh, Her stock trades have been called into question Her wealth has raised some issues for some people. So, look, it's been a rough time for Kelly Leffler. And now she's responding with a series of ads. Jim, I want to play just a portion of one of them and then ask you to comment on it. Here's what uh, she's saying and having others say on her behalf. Well, in my opinion, the media is just trash. It's just made up propaganda to fit their narrative. And that's just how they do. And unfortunately, Kelly's been a victim to that. Kelly was a target from the get-go because she stood behind the president, especially against Planned Parenthood. It's very important as a mother of two daughters, and I appreciate the fact that she's doing that for her life. She is just 100% there for the people here. I'm Kelly Leffler, and I approve this message. Jim, that's just one of the spots in which uh, real people in Georgia uh, say that the media is basically trash. It's uh, it's not a surprising tactic. Uh, we're always uh, the best target in situations where people are getting media coverage they don't like. No, it's, 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 look, it's, it's, it's twofold. N- number one is, is this, you know, if you, with a message like that, you can, you can kind of uh, dilute some of the damage that's being done by the, the commentary over her, her stock trades. And and the other part of that, of course, is is it it establishes kind of a a camaraderie with Donald Trump, uh, in in terms of, of media bashing, which and that's that's kind of a, a key to whether she makes a makes it to a berth in the November three uh, all comers election. What she's not saying, what she's not saying, and this is interesting because there's a, if you go to the Jolt this morning, there's a, a, a refer to a, a Politico uh, interview that she did on Thursday. And and what she and and she in it she is asked what surprise what surprised has surprised her about uh, about uh, uh, about this this electoral season, and she said and she says she expected criticism from the left. She didn't expect criticism from the right from Doug mm-hmm. Collins, and that's that. But she can't say that part on TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andre, I want you to respond. And then, Edward, you, you're the Republican on the panel. I want to give you the last word on this part of the show. Go ahead, Andre. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised that she's taken this anti-media strategy. She's invoked it in different places before in terms of her speeches and in terms of other ads. But it's really ironic that last week's ad strings together a bunch of local news reports that praise Kelly Leffler. So I think she's doing what is understandable. But the problem is, is that there is a pro-Trump alternative who's running against her who's really well regarded. And so I think it remains to be seen whether or not this is actually going to be effective, uh, you know, running against Doug Collins. It would be, you know, there's some effectiveness against the Democrat, but she's running right now against somebody in her own party. And I'm not sure that this lands in the way that she wants it to. Edward, how much trouble is Kelly Leffler in right now? Or do you think, in fact, this uh, she'll just uh, brush this off and move ahead in November? Well, I think she's in for a real fight. Uh, how much trouble she's in is yet to be seen. She's promised to devote $20 million of her own personal assets to the race. She 
committed uh, Jim Watt around $10 million so far. Uh, and she's got another $10 million to spend on the race, which will make this one of the most expensive races in Georgia history. But she's got a real fight. And the fact of the matter is her biggest opponent right now, according to the polls that I've seen, are, are not the Democrats in the race, no. uh, but uh, Representative Collins. That's her chief opponent right now. And so she's got to try to shore up uh, support among Republicans. And if she doesn't, uh, yeah, she's going to be in trouble in November. But we're a long way. May from May to, to November is an awfully long way, and a great many things can change between now and then. Yeah, isn't there a song basically about that, Mary Margaret? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, I'm not a singer, so I can't sing it for you. But <laughs> Kelly left. If the election, it's a were long, today, long time from May to September. <laughs> Uh, Go ahead. Can, I think what's true, and perhaps Ed might admit that, if the election were today, Kelly Leffler finishes third behind Collins and Warnock. And the question is for Georgians is who is the authentic Kelly Leffler compared to a very authentic person of Doug Collins? Doug Collins has had a consistent uh, persona. He's a Georgian. He he talks like a Georgian. He is certainly aligned with Trump in a in a viable way. How does Kelly Leffler make herself look authentic as a Georgian compared to Collins? It is a long time to election, and it doesn't matter how people vote today. But I have found no Republican that believes uh, she can beat Judd Collins. All right, I am got to cut it off right there. Uh, the, 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 the song is September song, by the way. It's a long, long time from May to December, but the day go, grows short when you reach November. Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Andre Gillespie, Jim Galloway, thank you all so much. And thank you, Sam Burmes-Dawes, Tom Faust, Jake Troyer, for the work you're doing to keep us on the air every day. We are going to take a break on Monday. We're going to take Memorial Day off. We will be back with you next Tuesday with another Political Rewind. Everybody out there, take care and please stay healthy. See you next week.